I can't help it. You're perfect for me. I could care less. You're perfect for me. I've been waiting. You're perfect for me right now. In the moment, you're perfect for me. I've been waiting. You're perfect for me. I'm not perfect, but you're perfect for me right now. Hello and welcome to episode 1923 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I could not possibly be more excited. Obviously, we had the second perfect game in World Series history. <laughs> this was uh, an up higher perfect game, uh-huh. but it counts in yeah, my mind. It I counts mean, for something. Yeah, it sure does. They play the World Series every year. Right. So I, I, maybe you think we're burying the lead here, leading yeah. with the umpire perfect game. But they play the World Series every year. Right. They don't have an umpire perfect game every year. This is a, a first on record. Yeah. So I am extremely excited. Of course, referencing Pat Hoberg, hero of game two, <laughs> <laughs> who has been given a 100% perfect accurate grade by umpscorecards.com. And we will be talking to the proprietor of UpScoreCards.com yes. later in this episode, Ethan Singer, who joined us back on episode 1702, and we talked to him about the site then, but we had to book him once more for the big moment here for, for Pat Hoberg. I just noticed that episode 1702, we started that episode by bantering about the zombie runner. That could come up again in this episode, <laughs> so nothing ever <sighs> changes, except now there's been an Umpire Perfect game. But people know I've been talking about Umpire perfect games for years i wrote about this for yeah. the year three years ago and this is the first one on record at least during the Statcast era so congrats to pat hoberg <laughs> i know that this question will come up in the course of our interview because spoiler alert we already recorded the interview yes. but i'm gonna ask you a question that you asked in the course of that interview which was did you watch this game live no, see, I was not able to watch as much baseball as I would have liked to this weekend because I was a groomsman in oh, an old right. friend's wedding. That's right. And so there was a rehearsal dinner Friday night, and then there was a late afternoon wedding followed by a late night reception on Saturday. So I was able to get home in time to see the end of Friday night's game, which was extremely exciting. Yes. But I really didn't see any of Saturday's live. I was just trying to follow on my phone as best I could. And so I did not get to experience the perfect game in real time. I was actually going to ask you, mm. I assume you did or, or saw more of it than I did in the yeah, moment. So I did, yeah. <laughs> did you notice anything? Like, was there any chatter on Twitter? Because <laughs> like, that's the thing about the Umpire Perfect game. It's, uh, it's, it's not quite as noticeable or prominent, you know, when people tweet out the results of the game. No one was like... Doing the, I was actually like, I I feel queasy about just like deep faked audio of like you know respeecher type re recordings of like people who are no longer around to give consent to yeah. their voice being used yeah. in that way. But I I would like kind of to hear you know like the Don Larson calls by Bob oh, Wolf sure. and, and Vince Scully <laughs> just yeah. like just transposed just uh, edited to be for Pat Hoberg again so that we could get Vince saying uh, greatest game ever um baseball history by Pat Hoberg or you know no hitter a perfect game by Pat Hoberg I guess the no hitter part wouldn't work but that was how excited I was but yeah did anyone notice that this was happening in real time 
Well, I don't know what the the Twitter scuttle but was because I'm trying to not be on there very much. But, you know, I didn't notice that it was a perfect game. Mm-hmm. It struck me as a well-officiated game, a well-called game. I feel weird saying well-called because like a, a catcher calls a game also, you know. <laughs> yeah. It seems a touch ambiguous in this yeah. instance. But I thought it to be a good game game a well umpired game you know it's a tricky thing first of all i think we should acknowledge that even if this were something that were blatantly obvious to every viewer as they were watching it most people still would not care the way that we care about this like it's <laughs> no, fine not at all <laughs> to have particular interests right i would love it like i don't know if, if you know the broadcasters would be talking about it or, or whether they don't want to jinx it right and it comes right, down yeah. to the, the last play appearance and right it, like, yeah it ends on a big call and it's like oh that was in the strike zone perfect game by Pat Hoberg and then yeah, Pat Hoberg like that didn't happen weirdly. jumps into the catcher's arms <laughs> <laughs> um no, that that didn't happen at all no. is, a, is a funny thing about yeah. it. That wasn't mm-hmm. what happened. But I, I think that we are faced with a, a, a bit of a conundrum when it comes to this sort of thing, right? Because I am of the mind, and I don't think that this is a either a particularly original or a particularly controversial view, that the best umpired games are the ones where you don't think about the umpire at all, you right. know, where you mm-hmm. are... You are not paying the least bit of attention to the umpire because the umpire has just called a good and solid game. They have had a consistent strike zone. They have not had anything particularly egregious. They've had no cause for us to notice them. Mm -hmm. And so looking back on it, didn't think it to be remarkable, which I mean as a compliment, you know, because I wasn't Mm -hmm. thinking about him at all. Yeah, no, that's right. Which is yeah. exactly what you want. And so it is the sort of thing where, you know, Ben, if we're trying to get traction for something, if we're trying to get people to really dig in and care about it the way that we do, I worry about our uh, odds of success because it is fundamentally asking people to do something that they don't want to do at all, which is think about yes. think about the umpire. But yeah, I thought it was a well-executed evening at mm-hmm. home plate. Yep. But as you mentioned, it was a pretty exciting game for reasons that had very little to do with the, <laughs> the umpiring. <laughs> yes. So, you know, there is, there is that. Yeah. There is that. Game one was even more exciting, but it was not a perfectly umpired game. It was it was okay. Right. James Hoy, I think he he had ninety four percent accuracy. He did a decent job. See, and, that and, seems pretty good. Yeah, and he it's about average. And and he had a, a good call, I thought, on Oledmus Diaz trying yes. to hit by pitch his way to yes. first base. So kudos to Hoy for correctly ruling on that one. I think. Yeah. But yes, I I guess on the whole, I'd rather have a, a game like game one with an exciting comeback and right. extra innings and no umpire perfect game. No. No umpire perfect game. A slightly less exciting game, but umpire perfect game, but still pretty special because this is something I've been thinking about for a while. And yeah, even if you were inclined to watch this in real time, there's no way you could really because there's post-processing that goes on with these these grading systems and you wouldn't be able to tell from even game day or or from let alone the broadcast K-Zone whether perfection actually had occurred in the moment. And so it's not something you can appreciate as it is happening other than just to appreciate, oh, this has been a pretty good zone, you know, (laughs) and the old cliche about like it's bad to know an umpire's name, right? Because that means they screwed up somehow or they made the game about themselves. And so it is a testament to Pat Hoberg's skill 
that he's, uh, he's not a household name as an ump, although I, well, he will be now, I assume, at least in some circles, <laughs> effectively wild podcast listening circles. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, I think, you know, it's it's okay for us to admit that we have very particular yeah, and bizarre interests. look, I mean, that, that kind of went viral, like, you know, sure, people yeah. were into this. Yeah, yeah. It's not as, as the most esoteric go. of our interests. No, so. we definitely have weirder ones. That is def- <laughs> that is certainly true. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kicking myself because I meant to mention Pat Hoberg last week just because when I saw that he got the assignment that's like what they he, all say yeah Call I know you're like, shot in advance I know, Ben right. no one uh-huh. will believe me now but no. now I didn't expect him to be perfect I, right. I just meant to mention hey you're reasonable pay attention to Pat Hoberg because yeah. he's, he's good he is one of the umps whose name is known to me just because I look at the umpire accuracy leaderboards yeah. and that sort of thing because I was reading an article about him in the Des Moines Register last week <laughs> that was about <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ben. I was <laughs> about oh, how he uh, he got the assignment and it, yeah. it has the story like it's uh, about him because he's he's from Urbandale and he oh. had just finished. He had played a round of golf in Iowa and he got a call and he had missed the call about getting the umpire assignment oh. from Michael Hill, the SVP of on-field operations for MLB. And he knew what the call was going to be about. He knew it was going to be good news. And so he just started driving straight to his parents' house to, to share the news with them. He, he showed up unannounced so that they would be the first to know that he Aww. had landed the assignment. And uh, and he's perfect. And he said it was a really cool moment when he learned that he was going to get this. My grandparents were there, too. We just kind of had a nice little moment as a family. And he's uh, like he's one of the better umpires, more respected yes. umpires among people who pay attention to umpires. Yeah. And he's 36 years old. He became a full-timer, I think, in 2017 and, and had been a, a fill-in guy occasionally before that. And and he's gotten some choice assignments before. He's worked three division series, a wild card game, a championship series. He was on replay duty in last year's World Series, so they are appropriately recognizing his skill. But this was his first World Series game behind the plate. He was also doing the Field of Dreams game last year in his home state. He got that assignment, too. Cool. So. Yeah, Pat Hoberg, good for him, happy for him. And uh, he was the the second most accurate umpire in the regular season this year behind Jeremy Rehack. I don't know if that's how you say it, Rehack, Rehack. I can't believe you don't know how to say it. I'm I'm worried you have like a... (laughs) Like a secret room, <laughs> pictures of them. Do you have a, a Pat Hobart jersey? A little, yeah, I have a little John Libka shrine yeah. somewhere in my apartment, but he didn't get the call. But minimum 100 games umpired, according oh, to umscorecards.com, okay. since 2015. Well, it yeah. goes John Lipka, Jansen Visconti, Jeremy Rehack, Will Little, and then Pat Hoberg. So he has been one of the elite, and now he is perfect. So super excited. I am thrilled for him. I'm very excited for you. (laughs) I worry that in my initial response to your question that I implied that the game that was perfect was the one on Friday, which is not true. And so Mm -hmm. I don't want to imply that it was the one on Saturday. I know what I know what the days are, Ben. Why would you? (laughs) Why would you think I didn't know what they were? Like, what would make you? (laughs) Nothing at all. No, didn't cross my mind. Yeah, but it is. uh, It's ironic, I guess, that. 
that I, and to a lesser extent, I suppose you would be excited by the Empire Perfect Game because we are people who who like framing and, yeah. and who are not necessarily in favor of robot umps who would be perfect every time, presumably according to whatever specifications the system is given, right? And so people might say, well, if you appreciate perfection so much, then would you not just want to have perfection every time? But no, <laughs> is the answer. And look, well, I said you'd have to get a New Jersey, you know. Like, yeah, yeah, right. No, but <laughs> just just robot on the back. Yeah. But I appreciate it because a, it's so difficult for a yes. human to to be perfect in this way to call 129 called pitches correctly. Yeah. It is just extremely difficult. That's why it hasn't happened, as far as we know, on record previously. And so I appreciate the skill there. And I appreciate it, as we've talked about many times, just the, the nuance of, of catcher receiving and, and yeah. all of that. And so if Hoberg is able to see past that and perceive what actually happened, then then all credit to him. So I think I can hold both of these ideas in my mind that I in some way value the, the fallibility of umpires because yeah. I appreciate the skill of catchers. And yet I also appreciate the skill of umpires. I mean, I I do just like appreciate the human element, which often <laughs> becomes kind of like a, a traditionalist talking point. It's yeah. like a human element, right? I appreciate it for concrete reasons, though, like not necessarily because of the imperfection, but because it, it allows us to see the respective skills of the people, the parties to this decision. I get that it can be unfair to, to hitters and to pitchers sometimes if, sure. if a pitch is called incorrectly that in theory they, they should have had. It can be unfair to people on both sides yeah. because if the zone is not called consistently and predictably, then what are you supposed to do as a, as a player? I get all the objections, but I can appreciate the umpire perfect game while also appreciating that catchers and, and pitchers, et cetera, are sometimes able to to sway them as well. Well, I think that one of the things that I am sort of struck by as we look at this, you know, example of umpiring perfection is just, you know, how few calls really it is that make the difference between someone who is merely very good and someone who is perfect. And I think that that just illustrates how good these guys often are at their jobs in in light of and in spite of a skill that we both appreciate very much. I think that it makes sense if you understand our end goal to be preserving framing because then you want you want people to be comfortable with human umpiring and its sort of accuracy otherwise we would lose opportunities to to monkey with it you know mm -hmm. and that would be tragic because it's it's so very fun mm -hmm. so yeah. that's what i think about that although having seen the challenge system in mm -hmm. the fall league ben yeah i know you're on board right? i'm right I'm yeah. right about this. Like, yeah. I, I'm not always right. I am often wrong, in fact. And I have gotten better at admitting that as I have aged. But I'm right about the challenge system. It is, it is lickety split. It mm -hmm. is clear, you know, it's going to add a whole new little wrinkle to to what guys can do to be valuable, you know, whether it's the hitter recognizing what his zone should be or the catcher or the pitcher. I'm just like, it's, it's going to be so fun. Everyone should get excited about how fun it would be. It is the perfect way to, you know, split the wickets. I don't know what they are. You know, Baby. it's a, a thread the needle, thread the needle <laughs> yeah. is the, the actual expression. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, you know, 
who knows if we had been able to see that challenge system in in action would he have remained perfect don't know i'm excited mm-hmm. to find out about mm-hmm. these things i think the it would be funny to see you know an umpire really try to press the point you know plead his case he won't do that because his whole idea is to have it go fast but i just think that we uh we should embrace the challenge system it's mm-hmm. the right way to do it yep. my idea is right yeah, no, I, you've, you've persuaded me. I yeah. think I was initially resistant. but I know, you're I'm skeptical. On, yeah, I'm on board, I think, as a, as a good compromise solution. Yeah. And and look, uh, Hoberg, as noted, pretty young guy, one of the younger umps. And, yes. and you definitely do see that on the whole, the younger umps conform more to the rulebook strike zone, yeah. which is not necessarily a function of their age so much as when they came up. Yeah. And they came up during this era where umpires were all graded based on the system and they didn't develop some idiosyncratic zone of their own prior right. to that. And so you you do see that the younger umps or the more recently arrived umps tend to be more accurate as we grade these things now. And so yeah. because umpires on the whole are more accurate than they used to be and presumably getting more and more accurate maybe as the umps who predated these systems gradually leave the game and you see just more and more conformity and everything like we've we've reached a point where I feel like it's pretty good like no one's ever going to be satisfied completely no. especially because we have K-Zone on the screen constantly yeah. we have replays we can see and replay an infinite number of times every mistake and it is frustrating when there is some pivotal call that yeah. seems to, to go the wrong way I get that but umpiring even though we complain about it probably as much as ever if not more just because it's just the the errors are so accessible to us yeah i think umpiring is better than it has ever been and so the need for robot umps at least sort of in an abstract sense is probably less acute Mm. than it ever has been but look we've talked about that many times i'm sure we will talk about it many more times to come as we get closer to one of those systems being implemented yeah i understand both sides all sides but I just wanted to appreciate what happened here and Pat Hoberg on the biggest stage, yeah. the biggest game of his life. Yeah. If only Justin Verlander could be more like Pat Hoberg. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. Wow. Shots at JV. So, yeah. You know what helps to combat the really egregious missed calls? Challenge system. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, we're not done with this topic. We will be back with Ethan to break it down in even more detail and talk about how all of this uh, happened on his end and how these things are calculated, et cetera. It's a a fun conversation, I think. So, yes, the, the World Series... As we speak here on Monday afternoon, it's not all about Pat Hoberg. It's also about the Houston Astros and the Philadelphia Phillies. What? Who, yeah, yeah, I know. We can give some airtime to them, too. They they were not perfect, but no. we can still acknowledge their imperfect contributions. Yeah. And the series is split as we speak. We are waiting now for a weather update Yeah. as for Game 3, and, and maybe we will get one as we are recording here. It's uh, forecast looking a little iffy as we speak, but you, the listener, know how that turned out out as you're listening. So we can talk a bit about games one and two, I guess, just to to get it out of the way, just a a couple of uh, non-World Series news items. So Nolan Arenado is uh, staying with St. Louis. Yeah. So they're bringing the band back, keeping the gang together. We talked about Adam Wainwright resigning for one more year. Nolan Arenado is now back with the Cardinals for several more years. Many more. So he had the opportunity to opt out and 
I would guess that the rate of opting out when players have the option to opt out, probably they have more often than not. I don't know what the percentage is, but often they opt out. But he has chosen now back-to-back winters not to opt out. Now, last winter, it was less in doubt because he was coming off a relative down year by Nolan Arenado standards. This year, he was coming off a potential MVP year. And so there was more doubt about whether he would stay, but he decided to. So he's got $144 million coming to him over the final five years of the deal. I think the Rockies are on the hook for uh, about... $31.5 $31.5 million of that. So sorry, Rockies, you're not getting out of your obligation to no. Leonardo. But this is a deal where I'm sure the Cardinals are, are happy to have him, right? Because uh, he's he's only 31. He's coming off an incredible year. He is on a Hall of Fame trajectory. He's basically a top 10 third baseman in yep. his career to this point through this age. And now they get him with the Rockies covering him. I mean, this would be less than he would get on the open market period, right? When uh, Dan Samborski ran the numbers, which uh, Jay Jaffe had in, in his piece about this at Fangraphs, I think he had him at six years and 180 million is what he would be due according to Zips. And so not only are the Cardinals getting him at a discount compared to that, but the Rockies are putting yep. a good deal of the bill as well. Yeah. So seems uh, great for the Cardinals. This is not the first time that a Cardinal has decided to to stay put, elected to stay with that organization. Perhaps that is a, a testament to the organization, to its consistent competitiveness. You know, Nolan Arnano was with uh, seemingly a directionless organization yeah. with the Rockies who would not surround him with the talent to get him to the playoffs and, and field competitive teams. And now he's with the Cardinals where they do do that basically yeah. year in and year out. So you can sort of see why he might be happy there. So the Cardinals have their whole infield essentially locked up for years to come. Yep. And it bodes well for them and, and forecasts continued competitiveness for the Cardinals for some time to come, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, and I think it's an interesting, you know, it gives us interesting insight. Like once you have cleared a certain threshold in terms of the amount of money you're guaranteed on a contract. You know, I think guys want to maximize their earnings, but I think, as you said, like Arnado's situation demonstrates that once you have gotten over that hurdle where you feel as if the deal is fair, it's representative of your talents, it's done importantly, right? You don't have to deal with the vagaries of the market. You don't have to test things in a year when you know, you will also have Correa back out there and Turner. And obviously these guys don't play the same position as as Arenado, but where you have like other big free agents and you wonder where do I sit relative to them? You don't have to deal with any of that. And to your point, you get to you get to say, This is a team that wants me and that wants to win. And that is important to me as a as a player. I think it's obviously important to him. And so it does give us like a really fun little window into the other stuff that might fit into an individual potential free agent sort of hierarchy of needs when it comes to assessing whether or not they want to test the market. You know, I don't think anyone doubts that he could make good money if he were to opt out. But, you know, it's probably probably feels pretty good to be like, no, I'm going to have enough money. And now I'd like to go try to win a ring. Like that seems like it would be pretty rad. What a nice thing to be able to do both. I will say, Ben, monkey mm-hmm. with our uh, our top fifty free agents a little bit though. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but true. but also 
hey, Nolan, thanks for doing it early, pal. You know, gave yeah. us time to adjust. So I think uh, he's getting what he wants and the Cardinals are getting what they want and I'm getting what I want and the Rockies remain a weird mystery. So there you go. <laughs> right. Okay. And also the Royals have hired a manager. Yeah. So Matt Quattraro has now been hired. He was a perennial candidate and interview finalist. He had been a candidate. He had interviewed for seemingly six other teams at least. Their positions, the Marlins, the Mets, the A's, the Pirates, the Tigers, the Giants. He's uh, been a finalist for at least three of those positions, according to MLB trade rumors. And so he had come close many times. And now he's got the job. He's gotten a three-year contract with the Royals. He is uh, 49. This is his first MLB managing gig, of course. And he is uh, said to be, obviously, he's a top candidate or he wouldn't be a perennial interview subject. But he's got the experience. He's uh, a former minor league player who topped out at AAA and then worked as a minor league hitting coach and hitting coordinator. And then he became Cleveland's assistant hitting coach when Royals owner John Sherman was then a minority owner of that franchise. And, yeah. and then he went back to the Rays and he was their third base coach. And then he was their bench coach. And the Rays personnel just perpetually getting poached. So yep. whether it's coaches or managers or front office executives, everyone wants Rays in their team in their uniform so this is yet another example of that and the Rays it's just kind of a a fact of life for them like not only do they lose players who get expensive and and reach free agency often but it's kind of a revolving door with the the brain trust there as well just because uh, people look at them being consistently competitive without spending a whole lot of money and they want that in their organizations so Quattro seems to be a respected candidate and now he will succeed Mike Matheny. Yeah. I never know what to say about these. <laughs> yeah. I, mean. I don't know how he'll do. I mm-hmm. he'll probably do fine. Probably yep. do well. You know, like uh, it's good it's good to have a new name, you know? Mm-hmm. And have a mm-hmm. new a new name in the ranks. But I yeah. never I never quite know how to respond to manager news. It's like, oh, here's a, another right. one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess in this case, it's somewhat revealing in what it tells you about the Royals, right? Because even if many organizations would have been clamoring for former Rays people, not necessarily the Royals under Dayton Moore, right? They were Mike Matheny all the way. There's probably a pretty big change from Mike Matheny to Matt Quattraro. Does that mean that the Royals will magically be great at pitcher development now like the Rays are? I don't know. But it does speak to some philosophical change because the Royals, for good or ill, they've been a somewhat old school organization. So to hire someone like Quattaro does signal some sort of commitment to change, I think. Painting with a broad brush just based on where he worked, but one would imagine that he's fairly progressive and analytically oriented or at least analytically receptive. So he fits the bill, I guess. They had yeah. interviewed a number of other people. They they interviewed Dodgers first base coach Clayton McCullough, which it would have amused me if the Royals manager had yes. been named Clayton McCullough yeah. as uh, you know friend of the show, Andy McCullough. Yes. I imagine that his firstborn will probably be named Clayton because <laughs> he's a, a fan of Clayton Kershaw's work. So, so that would have been odd if that had happened, but that did not come to pass. Anyway, I don't want to belabor this point, but j- just because I, I mentioned this Last time when Skip Schumacher was hired for the Marlins, like we're now, I think there are now only five 
managers who are not white guys at yeah. this point. Again, like uh, I'm not imputing the choice here of no, Petraro. But... Seems like he has the resume and everything, but when manager after manager gets hired and it's just white guy after white guy seemingly, yep. sometimes it's it's new white guys, sometimes it's yeah. retread old white guys, but really like we're down to to five i believe if i'm not miscounting you got dave roberts and ali marmel and dave martinez and alex cora and dusty baker this is presuming that dusty baker is invited back and and decides to return to the astros but five is not a lot given the makeup of the league and the demographics of the league and this is uh not progress in that respect it's 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 backward we've we've talked about this we had Shakia taylor on to talk about this not that long ago and it seems to be sort of more of the same here so there's one vacancy left the white Sox job yeah and it seems based on the reported candidates and interviewees for that position i know that they have interviewed Royals bench coach Pedro Grafal, who was also up for the Royals job, obviously, and Miguel Cairo and Astros bench coach Joe Espada, who, like Quattraro, has interviewed everywhere, and Ozzie Guillen and Ron Washington as well. I think it's been reported that Espada is no longer in consideration yeah, and that, I saw that. Washington and Guillen are, are also unlikely to get this gig which I guess would leave Griffol and, and Cairo, and I don't know who else is in the running. So so that may add to the ranks there, replacing Tony La Russa. Carlos Mendoza, also Yankees bench coach, he is going to be interviewed, it, it sounds like, if he hasn't already been. So, I mean, that was uh, kind of one of the objections or, or things that people brought up when La Russa was hired, in addition to just the process, just, yeah. just like the makeup of that roster, yeah. right? So it Seems like they're going in a different direction this time, so that might make it six, but still six out of 30 is uh, not a a high tally. No, it's certainly not representative of, as you said, the player population, and you know, I don't think that it's really that representative of the broader coaching population, particularly when you look to the minor league ranks, so there's obviously still work to be done, and I think it probably underscores what we have talked about before, certainly what we talked about when we had Shakia on, that like you don't stumble into this stuff sort of accidentally. If you think that having a diverse managerial group is important to the game and will better baseball, you know, you probably need to design systems that sort of point to that outcome in a purposeful way rather than just hoping that you're going to stumble into it sideways because as the game has shown for most of its history, we don't tend to stumble into that progress. We, we, you know, it's more hard fought than that and hard won. So, you mm-hmm. know, there will always be Rays is the other thing. There's always going to be this like endless stream of desirable Rays candidates or whatever. So mm-hmm. like you, I don't want to impugn the specific hire because I, like I said, I don't know how to evaluate these things. Yeah. And I think that it's hard for public facing folks to do that with any like real certainty. But yeah, in any individual case, it, it's hard for me to say, oh, how they hire this guy instead of that guy. Like, right. you know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and who knows how they interviewed and everything. So right. it's just looking at the league wide rates, really, yeah. especially over time. It's yeah. just, you know, you raise an eyebrow. So yeah, and it doesn't strike me as there's nothing about this particular process that I know about that is troublesome. And also, 
my expectation is that if you are talking to a diverse array of candidates, there are lots of qualified candidates who are people of color. And so the the odds that we end up with as white a managerial group as we have doesn't seem intuitive to me. So I think mm-hmm. that, you know, it needs to be a continued area of focus for the league if they really care about, you know, diversifying that group. Because like I said, it's not gonna happen accidentally. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's not how progress tends to work. So Yeah. All right. And the last little bit of news, not welcome news. (laughs) This is uh, an update from Rob Manfred about the zombie runner in an interview with Chris Russo. Sure sounds like it's going to be back and probably permanent. So Manfred said the clubs like it, the players like it. And I think overall the fans like it. I think it does bring sort of a focus to the end of the baseball game in a way that has been positively (laughs) received. (laughs) Does bring a focus to ending the baseball game? It does. That's certainly true. Yeah. So look, not surprising. I have gradually resigned myself to this unhappily, and I've kind of been waiting for this. Like it was, it was Trojan horsed in as sort of like a health and safety protocol, Mm -hmm. pandemic, COVID kind of thing, which was somewhat defensible. But even at the time, I was seemed kind of goofy. Yeah, goofy and and also just sinister for me because I figured (laughs) that that they would get it in under the guise of that and then never let it go because yeah, I'm sure the clubs like it and the players like it and probably a lot of media members like it media members who have to actually be at games regularly and and cover them but i don't know about the overall the fans like it part i'd like to see rob cite his sources on that one i know that there's been some some polling some polls in the field about this and Mm -hmm. i recall that Initially, like when this was first imposed, I remember a a morning consult survey where it was quite unpopular among respondents. I think I may have seen a a somewhat more recent that was 2020. I think I saw a more recent one where it was maybe less negative, but, but still not like positive. And whenever like Fangraphs or The Athletic has has done some sort of survey. It's been like starkly negative, drastically negative. And that's among some subset of online baseball fans, right? And and we are part of that subset. So again, like, I don't know, maybe MLB has has done testing on this. Like they're always doing fan surveys and perhaps they have found that that fans have come around. I mean, you get used to anything, right? I'm sure that like in... Decades from now, perhaps I will not be as up in arms about this as I have been to this point. It'll just be a fact of life. It'll just be part of the wallpaper. And we get accustomed to things that we see and hear over and over again. And eventually we we start to like them more or dislike them less. So, yeah, you can acclimate to it. I still just hate it philosophically and <laughs> I wish we could be rid of it. And really the fact that we don't do it in the postseason and right. that even if they extend this, I don't know, there's no word on whether they would extend it to the postseason, but it, it seems like they have been set to this point at least as this is a regular season thing. And when the games really count and really matter, right. well, then we will actually play them out, which – 
to me, just means like, well, don't we care about the regular season games right. too, though? Like, aren't yeah. they also important? Like, are we devaluing the regular season so yes. much that it's just like, ah, to hell with it. Like, let's just get this thing over with. Like, yeah. in October, oh, then we actually care about right. like playing real baseball all the way through. But like, do we really want to like send that signal that regular season games, it's like, I get like spring training, sure, like exhibitions, even like WBC and that sort of stuff. Like, fine. Like, I- I'm totally fine. Minor leagues, like, I'm right. okay with all of that. But really, like, if regular season still matters, like, don't we want to at least, like, pretend that, that this yeah. still matters and that we want to settle these games with consistent conditions and, like, actually have to have people earn their way on pace the way they you usually do? So. so, so yeah, like, I guess I'm not saying that I want them to extend it to the postseason, too. I guess I should be happy that I get some scraps. I, I get at least one month where we don't get postseason games marred by the zombie runner and we get to enjoy 18 innings of, of Astro. Mariners or 15 innings of Rays Guardians or whatever it is but the disparity if anything it it highlights just like how ticky tack like doing it during the regular season is yeah I I completely agree I think that you know when I say that the rationale was goofy in 2020 I mean like the the goal of keeping people as healthy as possible in the face of playing playing baseball during the pandemic, like that made a a good deal of sense. But it never struck me as a particularly like sincere rationale Mm -hmm. (laughs) on the part of the league. It always felt like, well, we have an excuse to do this now that people aren't going to push back against because they want everyone to like not get sick. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we just got to continue it. I don't particularly care for it. I'm not surprised that this is where we have ended up. It felt inevitable that this would be a more permanent fixture, but I don't I don't like it. I mean, I'm I'm surprised that the quote was able to be heard over its interviewer candidly, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. So let's talk a little bit about games one and two. So I think you got to be probably pretty pleased if you're a Phillies fan yeah. to get the split, right? I mean, after you come back from 5 nothing in game one yeah. and just with uh, how how game the Phillies have been to come back from deficits this postseason. Once you fall behind 5 nothing in Game 2, you're probably like, all right, it's only a matter of time until we come back again. Well, Didn't and it sure did, sure did look like that, Ben. Sure did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure did, you know? Yeah, they were chipping away. They had chances yeah. to, to tie that one, too. Just didn't have the clutchness in that particular game to do it. But really, you have to be pretty happy to yes. get a split in Houston. Yes. Even with Nola and Wheeler starting those games, still, like, well, if we just go by Fangraph's Zips odds, the, the Phillies' odds of winning the series have uh, slightly improved, at least after these first couple games. I think it was like 58-42 for the Astros before the series started. And now it's 56-44 in favor of the Astros as we wait for game three. So the scales have tilted slightly in the Phillies' direction because uh, they split in Houston. So that's good. I I think that game one was really exciting, obviously. That was Uh, just a, a great game. So Justin Verlander, I don't know what to make of this. I don't know what to say about this at this point. Like eight. World Series starts now, <laughs> and look, eight starts is, is not a lot. It's of not very many starts. In, He's in the had grand scheme of things. Yeah, you know the thing about Justin Verlander. One of the, well, at least one of the things about him, Ben. He's had a lot more starts than that. As a lot more out. starts, yeah. hundreds of starts, hundreds, many, yes. many, four hundred eighty-two starts. starts in the regular season. 
And in the postseason, lots of starts then to 33 in 34 games pitched. So I think the thing that confuses me, so look, he has a a 6.07 career World Series ERA. It's very bad. Not a lot of World Series starters have have gotten that many World Series starts. But of those who have, he is the worst by that metric. Like, it's just, it's bad. There's no way to spit it as not bad. It's bad. But it is... Confusing to me, like trying to come up with a scenario where this is like him choking. I mean, it it is by one definition choking in that he has been bad in, in these big games, but like the choking being attributable to nerves or anxiety or or perfectionism or, or whatever it is, because like he's been a perfectly fine postseason pitcher in the earlier rounds, which is the interesting thing. Like his career regular season ERA is uh, 3.24. And during the postseason, so his career ALDS ERA is 3.08. That's in 14 games and 13 starts. His career ALCS ERA in 12 starts is 3.01. So he's been perfectly good in the first two rounds of the postseason. And then like twice as high an ERA in the World Series in eight starts. And I'm trying to come up with a scenario where like... He is one of the best pitchers of his generation yeah. during the regular season. He he performs at that incredibly elite high level, given all the pressure of the regular season. And then ALDS, ALCS, even yeah. more pressure. Yeah. And he's perfectly fine in his usual self in those starts on the yeah. whole. And then the World Series, it's like, well, that's just too much pressure. Like the stakes are just too high. So I don't know. Like, I, just, I don't know what to make of it. Obviously, he's facing good teams in those starts, but that's yeah. not enough to explain it. He's just, he's been bad. So whether it's just a random assortment of eight starts and he's happened to be bad or whether there is just something that like pushes him just to, over the, the edge of like able to, to function at a very high level in a high pressure situation to unable to function at that same level. I don't know. It's weird. It's uh, not what you would expect. And it's obviously not what his teams would have hoped for or what he would have hoped for. So it was a big part of the narrative coming into this series and this yeah. start, like Justin Burlander, World Series Redemption. And I guess he'll get another start probably. And probably. we'll see if he's any better in that one. But yeah, not good. May I posit a theory? Sure. I have a theory about what explains it. It's a very simplistic theory. So you might say, Meg, that's too straightforward an explanation. And if you say that, then I'll go, yeah, okay, fair. Here's my theory. Justin Verlander throws a lot of innings in Mm -hmm. a a regular season, typically. And I think he's tired. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, I think I by mean, the time he gets to the World Series, he's just tired. You know, I think he uh, he's a guy who takes a lot of pride in. I mean, not this year as he was coming back from from Tommy John, obviously, but also now he's older. So you know what happens when you get older? You get tired. You mm-hmm. get tired is the thing that happens when you get older. But I I just wonder if, in addition to what I imagine to be the actual explanation for this, which is just that it's a weird bit of randomness that we'll never mm-hmm. be able to fully explain and that he will think about it at 3 a.m. for the rest of his life. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, maybe it's as simple as if you're a guy who throws, you know, as he did in 2019, 223 regular season innings, that your last couple just are kind of bad because you're tired. What if yeah. he's just tired, Ben? He threw 175 innings this year coming off of TJ at 39. What a 
Yeah. What a thing. Of course he's tired. It's amazing he has arms at all. Right. No, I mean, that's a, a perfectly reasonable explanation. I, I think mean, it's overly again, simplistic, it's like, but I yeah. think there's something to it. You know, we should mm-hmm. look into that. Right. Yeah. Again, like I, I guess the fact that he's been so good earlier in the postseason and then. Well, he wasn't I, as I, tired I, then yet. You know, that's the thing. <laughs> right. Like it's, it's earlier. Just that, that final round, like the adrenaline innings, cannot compensate. Yeah, yeah. He had fewer innings on his arm <laughs> and then he had more and he's like, I am um burdened by great fatigue that could be but he did not have his good stuff in this game and no. he was not getting swings and misses on the no. secondary stuff and so this is uh partly on dusty i think to some extent because sure. he pushed him too long i mean yeah. I, a big part of all the previews heading into this world series is about the astros bullpen right and how deep it is and how many great options they have yeah and the phillies bullpen has been great thus far yeah. too but really if you have that many pitchers at your disposal and i know justin verlander he's not your typical starter who you necessarily lift every time third time through even in the world right. series he's justin verlander yeah but still but maybe this you did should not look like peak Justin Verlander like one of the reasons why you you have a manager in theory as opposed to just like deciding what you're going to do before the game starts or or having an AI do it or something is that maybe the manager can observe things about the pitcher and and their level of fatigue and their level of effectiveness and can talk to the pitching coach and the bench coach and the catcher and the pitcher and and sort all this out and figure out okay this is the time to make a move and it sure seemed like watching from afar that that time came before the move was made and, and people were first guessing that, I think. So, yeah, I think he, he stuck with him a little long. And, you know, I feel bad for Dusty because people were were bringing up, of course, Game 6 of the 2002 sure. World Series almost 20 years to the day where Dusty's team, the Giants at that point, blew a, a 5 nothing lead. And, you know, the common thread there is Dusty Baker and that this was the last time that a team had blown a 5 nothing lead in a series game. And here's Dusty again. I don't think he did anything wrong in that first World Series game in 2002. His, his bullpen, which was good, just kind of let him down. But yeah. this time, I think he, he let down the team a bit by not going to that bullpen sooner. Who knows what would have happened if he had. Right. But I think this was uh, clearly not peak Justin Verlander and, and no. he was making mistakes and the Phillies still had to take advantage of those yes, mistakes. they sure and did. they did. They and sure they did. were good too and everyone who got those crucial hits and Harper and Bohm and Real Muto with his, his multiple big hits in that game. Yeah. Like kudos to them. They had yep. to come back even though they had this deficit early on to a good team. They were not intimidated by that. They clearly like don't ever think that they're out of games. And no, no fear were, in that team. No, and that is uh, not sufficient, but it is necessary, yes. I think, in That's order to win to and, and to have comebacks, right? You you can't take yourself out of the game yeah. when you fall behind early, and and they didn't, and they got the hits, and, you know, Nola was, was not good either, but Rob Thompson, I, I thought, had a, a very good game yeah. and was much more aggressive yeah. with, with his ace, right? Yes. And so... He pulled Nola. He he brought in Jose Alvarado, which I, I thought was great in the fifth inning. Yeah. Because this was something that I, I may have mentioned on the pod, but definitely mentioned in my my preview piece is that like as uh, there's a lot of like the lefties were going to swing things in this series one way or another because the Astros don't have a lot of lefty pitchers, although they did roster Will Smith for this series, which was a change. But yeah. really like the Astros righty 
pitchers and relievers who are very good at getting lefties out, but against the more heavily left-handed Phillies lineup relative to the Astros' previous opponents in this postseason, and especially guys like Harper and, and Schwarber, who basically should be or is a platoon guy who who is not platooned, but he is he's just way, way better against opposite-handed pitching. So that figured to be one of the big matchups. And also on the other side, Jordan Alvarez and Kyle Tucker, that figured to be big as well yeah. because the Phillies don't really have like dominant lefty relievers other than Alvarado and so it would have been easy for Thompson to just say oh it's the fifth inning like let's go to Brad Hand or someone here right and and he didn't he broke the glass and he brought out Alvarado to face Alvarez and, and Tucker and then, you know, he had to bring in Ranger Suarez, right, to, to yeah. come in later in the game, which is, you know, kind of a gutsy move because he was scheduled to start game three. And and I'm, I am I still like I, I like that move. I yeah. like just bringing in the starter on yeah. the throw day yep. in the playoffs. Like, I don't know that it is smart, actually. <laughs> I, I like it just like in theory. I don't yeah. know that it, it works out always. And, and there was a, a good post at, at Fangraphs just uh, about like what happens when back-end rotation guys pitch yeah. in relief in, in the postseason. And, and it seems like it's not that great. It hasn't been that great. This was uh, a post by Alex Eisert, which yeah. I will link to. And the track record there, not strong. Yeah. So. Generally, I I like the idea of using starters in relief, and sometimes it works. Like, it it worked for the Nationals against the Astros in 2019, but sometimes it backfires, and sometimes it seems like it tires them out, and they're not their regular selves when they come back to to pitch out of the rotation. But Thompson was just really aggressive. He went to Alvarado to face those good guys. He he used Suarez, and and then he brought in Dominguez to— keep the tie in the eighth and ninth. And so he, he got five and two thirds shutout innings from the bullpen, which, you know, credit to the relievers, but also credit to Thompson for putting them in that position. Yeah, I think when we had Eric on to talk about the the Fall League, but also the World Series, like that was the thing that, that he noted, and I know you did as well, that like they seem to be adapting very quickly and making much more sound sort of managerial choices on on the Philadelphia side when it comes to their use of relievers in a way that is like really cool like it's just nice that there's like oh I gotta I gotta course correct here so that we can try to win a dang world series and then in in that case it ended up working out for them Mm -hmm. now some of you some of you are still back on the 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 theory i posited and you're thinking well meg how is it possible that it is a matter of fatigue when justin verlander put up a a 13-5 era against the mariners in a much (laughs) earlier round of the postseason and to that i say you know who are we to doubt the mighty offense of the seattle mariners you know Mm -hmm. who umpired that game pat holbrook Oh, how about that? All how right. <laughs> Got to look up his accuracy rate for that game. I'm too. sure it was perfect or just <laughs> no, shy of. It's not perfect. I would just have Just shy. <laughs> I course corrected just like Rob Thompson. Yeah. I really want to put a P in his name and make him Rob I know, Thomas I know. every it's, time. I just want to do it every time. And I think I end up saying it right maybe half the time. Yeah. Although I guess I, I have a couple of years to get it right now that he's been extended. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that bottom of the Astros lineup, we, we've talked about it, but it is very vulnerable. Just a, a lot of outs in the bottom of that lineup. I've seen some people calling for David Hensley to, to pinch hit, which has not happened since the division series, or even to start a game over the options who are not hitting. And one of those, as we mentioned, Aledmus Diaz just uh, trying to <laughs> get himself plunked to get on base 
And really, that was almost a strike. It was not quite in the strike zone, probably, but it was uh, pretty close. And it was pretty close. Just to promote another Fangrass post, very fun post from yeah. Davey Enters. Yeah, Davey who, did a nice uh, job with that. Yeah, just uh, like a video review of every time yeah. that a batter has uh, has drawn a hit by pitch on oh. a pitch in the strike zone. Yeah, I'm going, which... going, going like plunk. I'm like, I'm going to get plunked. Has apparently happened 27 times, it looks like, uh, over the past 10 years, including twice in the playoffs. So so it it takes some guts from umpire James Hoy there just to to make that call and say, no, he leaned into that one, which he very, very clearly did. He very clearly leaned into it. Yeah. But still, like the default is you get hit, you take your base. And you see this sometimes. It it happens. Yes. It it happened to Anthony Rizzo earlier this year, and he was upset. (laughs) He gets hit a lot, and he was deprived of a hit by pitch in this case. And yeah, I I respect an umpire who, especially like in the World Series, will make kind of the uncommon call as opposed to just like the the default, which is you got hit, you get to go to first. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly, you know, in front of a home crowd. Mm-hmm. Where they're going to say, hey, he got hit. He should right. take his base. And then you go, no, he should yeah. not and lean I believe into that. Diaz denied everything after the game. And oh, so yeah. he was like, come on, man. We, we saw yeah, it. Yeah, we saw it. We <laughs> like saw it. It's okay. I yeah. wouldn't, it, you know, it's, it's funny because it's like there's no downside to him admitting that that's what he did. Right? No yeah, one's going to be. Yeah, we like, all know. <laughs> people yeah. know. People watched. Can't they? Can't he just say, you know, I was trying to get one over, see what he would do. And I mean, that didn't yeah. work. Like, yeah, he could he could equivocate a little. I mean, just, you know. Yeah. Right. If you're an Astro. I, I guess, guess if you're an Astro, <laughs> even if you're of a more recent vintage, you probably mm-hmm. don't want to be like, no, I was using guile and potential right. rule breaking to advance because people tend to not have any reaction to that at all. They tend to right. be very <laughs> measured. Yeah, calm. of course, then just to deny it, then you kind of look even worse because we, yeah. we all saw what was going on there. So uh, yeah. I don't know. it's okay. Like he's far from the first to try to get on base right. this way. It's, it's okay. Like yeah. it's it's a time-honored tactic. You yeah. know, you work your way on however you can in that situation. So yeah. you might even appreciate just like the, the, the grittiness of yeah. like, you know, taking one on the, the elbow protector. Let's yeah. be clear. Like he didn't actually get a bruise here, presumably. But but still, you know, to stick an appendage in the path of a pitch right. is it takes a little guts. So I, I mean, can't imagine it feels good, even no, if you do I'm have sure the elbow, elbow yeah. protector. You know, mm-hmm. you're getting. I bet when the elbow protector like reverberates, it probably is a little ouchy. I would think. Probably, yeah, yeah. I would think so. Yeah, so you know, it's okay. You can admit it. We will. Yeah. We will accept that. I think yeah. I'd rather have him just come clean than not. So. That or there was that. I also, you know, want to acknowledge Kyle Tucker who hit two home runs. Yeah, in this he sure game. did. <laughs> so that was uh, that was good too. He accounted for for four of the runs there by hitting those two homers. Yeah. So if uh, you really know, good. Robertson struck him out, I think in the tenth, but yeah, he just he didn't get a whole lot of offensive help in no. that game. But he did what he could. Yep. So yeah, great comeback. Great game, like uh, comeback and lead changes and, and all the rest. And kudos to Real Muto for, for the big game-winning shot. I think that people underestimate the degree to which being bashful and sort of coy can read in a charming way when mm-hmm. you're engaged in something like Diaz was. Like if you're just like, oh, I was trying to get on base and be bashful, then people are like, oh, Oh, you. And <laughs> right. that's, you know, because that's how everybody talks. Mm-hmm. And then it's fine. But yes, we should acknowledge the, the Kyle Tucker of it all. Yeah. The most Ichabod Crane looking baseball player. <laughs> yes. <laughs> coming up big in mm-hmm. that moment. It is it is odd that the two best pitchers of this generation, Clayton Kershaw and Justin Verlander, both 
burdened by lack of postseason yeah. success to varying degrees and at varying times. But that's uh, it's not going to be like line one of, of the story about them getting into the Hall of Fame, but it's something that is associated with, with both of them at this point. So, you know, unless uh, Justin Verlander like pitches a perfect game of his own to clinch in game six or something, then I guess that would get the monkey off his back. And, and Kershaw got it off to some extent, not fully, but, but really like both of those guys, you can say that they are the best pitchers of their generation. And I think you should say that, but also there's this little, you know, huh, it's weird. It's kind of yeah. odd that they were not their usual selves in the postseason. I don't know that it means anything, but it's a fact. So <sighs> I think it just means that everybody's tired, Ben. Yeah, everybody is tired, but not the hitters who were facing them in those games. Well, <laughs> <presumably>. no. <laughs> yeah. They aren't tired. Who knows no. why? Maybe they mm-hmm. slept better. It could, yes. you know, it could be any number of things. All right. And then game two, kind of overshadowed by the James Hoberg performance, frankly, but <laughs> not a bad game in its own right. So this was uh, this is kind of a throwback, I guess, like at this point. Framber Valdez going six and a third is like, whoa, (laughs) retro for a World Series starter to do that. It was uh, the first such start since Zach Greinke went six and a third in game seven of 2019, which was an extremely fun outing. Yes. And yeah, this is like, this is the kind of game that I I like on the whole, just like a starter going deeper and then turning over to the bullpen. And it's like only a, a couple bullpen guys, maybe instead of several bullpen guys. So Valdez was great. We got another little, like, sticky stuff watch in this game, certainly on Twitter, you know, the the Joe Musgrove repeat. This was not sticky ears this time, but any Astro starter or former Astro starter, I guess, is going to come under scrutiny for, for sticky stuff usage. So uh, in this game, like, uh, Farmer has these mannerisms, I think, pretty consistently, just yes. like rubbing things and fidgeting and everything. Yeah. And, and I think even the Phillies said as much that, that he looked basically the same yeah. doing these things, all these little fidgets and such the last time they faced him so i don't know that this was out of the norm for him and i guess the the kind of odd part is that he he switched gloves mid-game yeah. which is not something you see all Typically the time see, yeah is at least if the glove doesn't break right. which uh, didn't happen as far as we know so anyway look the the antennas are always up, up. the radar it's always circulating yeah and uh and you know when someone looks good people wonder is he too good right but yeah, no smoking gun here, as there wasn't with Musgrove either. He was uh, he was just good. He's a very yeah. good pitcher, and he was very good in this game. Very good in that game. There wasn't a smoking gun. There was a smoking bat. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Eh? <laughs> Are you referring to the Martin Maldonado yeah. bat? Yeah, that was that was weird too. So like Maldonado using a, a Pujols, Pujols model bat, bat, which is apparently not legal, but but not because of like the the specifications or anything. Just because like what it's it, a player it's, safety thing, right? It's, it's maple, yes. right? And and this was a a material that has been disallowed because it is more prone to shattering, shattering, and shattering into sh- into shards in a way yes. that you know could be right you know i think we have talked before about how remarkable i at least find it i think you shared this sense of awe that we have just not seen something truly gruesome on the field with somebody Mm -hmm. getting impaled in a in a yucky way because of bat shards and i think that you know moving on from this material was meant to minimize the potential risk of that right 
yeah, I did not know that Pujols was using a model of bat that had subsequently been disallowed and that right. he was allowed to use it because he had been using it prior Before, to. Yeah. yeah, he was grandfathered which, in. Which is, uh, it's kind of odd, I guess, because yeah. like if it is a safety issue, yeah. it's always it's always weird when there's like, you know, helmet rules imposed. But yes. then if you weren't using a helmet, you don't have to you use a helmet to, anymore. Like, <laughs> but don't you want, don't yeah. we want all of the folks to be reaping the benefits there? Yeah, yeah. right. I guess I get it in that sense because I don't know, like if your whole game was based on you not using a helmet, maybe it's like weird to change mid-career or something, but like you'll probably get used to it, right? If everyone else is getting used to it, you could probably get on board. Like what if that player is is hitting the head and has some serious injury and it's like, well, we we said he could because that's the way he was doing it before. Like would that be a great explanation? I don't know. With this specifically, especially if like it's not like it was in theory performance enhancing or whatever. It wasn't like he had a bigger bat than everyone else or a right. lighter bat or something. It was just a different material. Like, I don't know. It's it's kind of weird. Like, if you think it's more likely to shatter and impale someone, yeah. it's like, is it more important to allow the player who is using that specific bat model to keep doing that? Like, I think probably Pujols would have been all right. Yeah. But anyway, whatever. So Maldonado, he doesn't get to use that bat anymore. Yes. The bat model that he rode to his silver slugger finalist <laughs> status. Now he's he's been stripped of that. So he will not be the slugger. We have uh, become accustomed to Martina Maldonado being to this point. Anyway, so yeah, I mean, credit to the Astros for for jumping on Zach Wheeler early, scoring some runs off of him. And and, I mean, they, the Astros offense did their job against Nola and Wheeler, like scoring five runs in games that those guys started. Like that's, that's good. Yes. So their pitchers just, uh, didn't hold up the their end of the bargain in game one, Verlander specifically, but yeah. in, in game two, they did. Yeah. <laughs> Fromber was good. The bullpen was good. And yeah. the Phillies were 0 for 7 with runners in scoring position, which will happen when you're facing the Astros bullpen and, and great starter. So, yeah, I don't know that there's it was sort of a, a simple game to analyze, I guess, really. There wasn't all that much to it. It was kind of a, a throwback, sort of simple. All right, good one starter just showing up and, yeah. and shoving and the Astros offense doing enough to win. I still can't believe that neither of those Kyle Schwarber balls went out, though. It remains, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, you know, I appreciate that like the odds in any given plate appearance, even for a you know, a hitter who has as much thump as Schwarber does, who has exhibited as much thump both in this year's regular season and this year's postseason as Schwarber has. Like, the odds are stacked against that person hitting a home run. Most of the time you don't do that, right? If you did, Mm -hmm. we wouldn't have spent so much time being fascinated by Aaron Judge this year. So Mm -hmm. I get it, Ben. I want to make clear I get it. But then you watch it and you're like, but how did that not... How did it not go out, you know? How did the second one right up against... Ichabod Crane didn't have an inch to give in that outfield, the second second one out there. And I thought, Mm -hmm. oh boy, here we go. And then he just caught it harmlessly in the outfield. Do you think he'd feel insulted, Kyle Tucker, to be compared to Ichabod Crane? I don't want to hurt his feelings. I guess it's not, in theory, the the most flattering comparison, but uh, it depends... Which Ichabod Crane you're you're talking about? The animated which... Disney, the animated Disney one, Ben. That's the one I'm I'm comping him to because that's yeah. the one he looks like. Right. So you know, if if you're talking about Johnny Depp playing Ichabod Crane, at least like uh, physically speaking, I guess that would not be an unflattering comparison. But yeah. since you're specifying animated, maybe maybe not as flattering. But well, but see, here's here's the thing that I would say if Kyle, if you're listening and you're like Meg, 
that's rude. I don't look like that animated character. I'd first say, yes, you do. And also, the second thing I'd say is, Kyle Tucker, you had 25 stolen bases. I am confident in your ability to get away from the Headless Horseman. I think you would be much more adept at it than Ichabod Crane. You wouldn't ride a mule. You'd just run. You'd be fine. <laughs> anyway, he didn't have an inch to give, much like Ichabod Crane in the Headless Horseman, yes. but he was able to secure the catch, and then uh, Kyle Schwarber went back to the dugout empty-handed but it felt like he should have you know i know that it would be chaos and i know we can't do it and i know there's no way to do this but it definitely falls in the category of that's cool enough it should count for one run like it should count for one he doesn't have to you know there were runners on base so i understand you don't want to reward the guy for all of that but it just mm-hmm. felt like you know it's a cool yeah. game baseball for to come away with nothing yeah you know and they had him they let him run around the bases the first yeah. time when that ball went fell yes yeah. you know, so five good. two they could have spotted the phillies one run right anyway well, if you're the Phillies, like you got to be happy with uh, getting eaten two thirds shut out out of your bullpen to this yeah. point. <laughs> so Phillies bullpen even better than the Astros bullpen yeah. to this point. Partly maybe because the Astros bullpen was not allowed to throw as many innings as it could have. But yeah. really, like if you had told Phillies fans that you're going to get a split coming out of Houston, probably be happy, yeah. even though you have Nolan Wheeler in those games. And if you told them that Nolan Wheeler are going to allow ten combined runs, right, and that they and we got still a get a split, yeah, yeah, they'd be thrilled. I would think. Yeah. yeah. So game three is going to be wild. <laughs> so yeah. the atmosphere in Philly, as we speak, we still don't know if it's going to be Halloween or not. Right. Or whether the weather will lead to a postponement. But one way or another, the atmosphere, it's, it's just it's going to be very loud. You know, you get the series home to Philly with a chance to win in your home territory. So that's uh, that's what you want. I mean, you want to win two, obviously. That would right. be preferable to, to just winning one. But right. still, one better than none. Again, hope this clarified things for everyone about how many games it's, it's desirable to win. More is better. So... That's a, about all I have to say about this series so far. It's been fun. I'm I'm glad that it was not a sweep in one direction or another. I hope it, it gets extended even further. I got to say, because this is one of my little hobby horses, my, my postseason peeves, I did not see a lot of people predicting a sweep, even though most people were predicting the Astros to win, understandably, mm. on paper. Do we need to change on paper to like on screen or something because no. like usually we we're looking on a screen these days anyway no, it's fine we all know what we mean by on we paper do know what we mean it's like doing the the earmuffs for replay yes we know. exactly we know right. what it means skeuomorphism yeah yeah so because the astros were were favored most people appropriately pick them to win the series but i gotta say didn't see a lot of sweep predictions and this is uh, a horse i have beaten i don't want to beat horses even if they're dead have some respect yeah. for the horse corpses out there but i was looking at all of the like expert predictions at various places no one at espn predicted a sweep no one at cbs sports predicted a sweep no one at the athletic they did like a survey of, of players and scouts and such and no one there predicted a sweep they didn't actually ask their writers to predict the number of games, which I'm fine with that, too. We don't actually have to pretend that we have that level of precision. But MLB.com had a survey of like 75 MLB people and only two predicted a sweep. So, again, this is good for those who have not heard my, my rants about this before. 
I think it is very silly ever to predict a postseason sweep because really, just statistically speaking, if you are saying that you think one team is going to sweep a seven-game series, you are saying that you think that that team is like 75 or or more, 76% likely to win each game or, you know, in the aggregate. And and that just never happens in the postseason, especially when you have good teams against other pretty good teams, at least. There's never that lopsided a matchup. It is, to me, indefensible to predict a sweep. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, no. And and I've, I've said this about predicting a seven-game win as well, too, because, like, and I'm, I'm less harsh on people who predict that a series will go seven because I think, look, when people are saying a sweep or or will go seven, they're, they're essentially signaling, like, I think this team is a clear favorite or I don't think there is a clear favorite. This is like a toss-up and it's going to go deep. So that's essentially what they're saying by those things. And I'm kind of parsing what they are, like, probabilistically saying, which is uh-huh. probably not how they're actually thinking about it. No. Plus, they're probably just, like, you know, sending a message or something. Like, they're not necessarily trying to be more accurate because who cares about predicting this accurately? No one can anyway and no one really right. thinks anyone can. Right. And so maybe you just want to stand out and, like, be attention-getting. And if you predict a sweep and then there's a sweep... <laughs> You know, the incentives are are in favor of just, like, taking a bold stance Uh one way or another, more so than just, like, you know, being the the calm, measured, here's what the the probabilities say. This is why I don't predict things if I can help it. But really, like, you shouldn't predict that a team will win in seven, usually. I'm, I'm quoting from the article I wrote about this a few years ago, because essentially you're saying, if you're predicting that a team will win in seven, you're saying that either it will be trailing heading into game six, which would mean that you're predicting that it will lose three of the first five games, or that it will be winning going into game six, but then lose game six. And either of those is, is kind of odd if you think that that team is superior and that's why it's going to win. Then then why would you predict either of those series? Like if you think it's a true toss-up, it's no more likely to go seven than six. But if you think one team is at least a little bit better, uh-huh. then it's more likely to you win in six than seven. seven, yeah. Right. Not a big yeah. deal. But I think that it, like you could... <laughs> potentially <laughs> construct some scenarios where uh-huh. like maybe just because of the the starting pitcher matchups or something you might think oh well they actually are more likely to lose in game six but then win in game seven or something so I, i'm less doctrinaire about that right but the sweep thing i just i cannot count strong feelings predicting sweeps and and i've gone back and forth with yeah about this because uh you know joe predicted a sweep in this series he was one of the few to do so and uh, and I look, I'm a satisfied customer of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. I've subscribed for years. I will continue to subscribe. I enjoy Joe's writing and analysis. But on this one issue, we just uh, we cannot see eye to eye. And we have corresponded. And he actually, I think it was in one of the championship series, he predicted that it would go six. And then he tagged me on Twitter to say that he was going to say seven, but then my voice was in his head. Oh. <laughs> so I felt like, okay, I, I this you've, is you've worthwhile that through. I'm- You've broken through. Yeah, you've I made an impression. him, yeah. right, because I'm making a difference here, at least with one person. But then he went ahead and predicted a sweep in, in this series. And, and I just, I don't know what to say, Joe. I just, I, I can't, I can't persuade him. I guess he's not a persuadable voter on this issue mm-hmm. and he always says in his previews like the prediction is the least important part of the preview so right. he's not actually putting so much stock in his Sue saying but right. it just I find it distracting when after all the the excellent analysis that precedes the prediction 
And then we get this call that in my mind is is inconsistent with the facts on the ground, which is that the Astros, you know, on paper better than the Phillies, but not that much better. Anyway, this is I just want to say I, I'm not sufficiently devoted to this issue to go back and see whether there were more sweeps predicted in the past. And we've actually made progress here mm. as a society when it comes to sweep prediction. I'm just saying I saw fewer than I would have expected to, given the consensus that the Astros were the favorite. So I want to applaud everyone except Joe. (laughs) Wow, Ben. I have, I mean, you just said a lot of words. And I have two things to say in response to those words. The first is that one of my great joys in podcasting with you is discovering the (laughs) issues on which you feel very passionately. Yeah. Because sometimes... They align with my previous understanding of you as a person. And sometimes they surprise me, you know. (laughs) And I don't think that, you know, wanting there to be some amount of logical consistency is out of character for you. But I am surprised to at the depth of your passion, you know. Mm -hmm. I won't say taken aback because that ascribes more judgment to it than I mean. But I am, I remain surprised, you know. Surprise is Mm -hmm. the right word here. The second thing that I would say is that maybe the way to make your peace with this, if you were inclined to try to make peace, not because you are wrong, but so that you don't have to feel unnecessarily agitated about something that objectively doesn't matter, (laughs) would be that it is not, it is not an expression of logic so much as of one of aesthetic preference, right? Mm. So maybe what the authors who are, and I don't know that that Joe would understand his prediction this way. I don't want to speak for him. Mm-hmm. But you know, maybe what the writers who are predicting either a sweep or a seven-game series are really expressing is a preference for how those games would play out mm. and the kind of World Series they would get to watch, not in terms of the greatest likelihood or the Mm -hmm. team that presents the most fearsome pitching or the strongest batters, but simply the literal kind of series that they prefer. Yeah, I could see that with with seven. And and to be fair, like before I realized this game six, game seven thing, I used to predict things to go seven too. So I'm more understanding of that. But but who prefers a sweep other than perhaps a fan of that team? Would any neutral observer want a sweep with that maybe would they want that really? well okay know. but Why? okay but okay <laughs> just to get Hold the season on. over with you <laughs> relax your off season started. Well, so, so some of it might be that but also you know we spent a millennia debating the strangeness of the format in terms of it sort of incentivizing teams to be really good rewarding teams that are really good and so maybe what they are expressing is especially if they see the astros as the team that is likely in their mind to sweep Mm. What they are expressing is a preference for the postseason and particularly the World Series to Mm. mirror the kind of dominance that we see during the regular season. And Uh the most persuasive way to do that would be for the Astros, who were at the very least one of the very best teams in baseball this year, if not the best. Some Mm -hmm. would make that argument. I'm Mm -hmm. not expressing an opinion on that one way or the other. But the most persuasive argument is to say the Astros, who are easily the best team standing and as the postseason progressed, seemed like the strongest team in the field, winning in in a sweep, (laughs) just goes to show that like there can be some kind of accord between the regular season and the postseason, and that the team that is the best is the one mm-hmm. that is rewarded. So there you go. Relax. 
Ben? <laughs> yeah. Well, Joe is a regular season guy. I don't know if that's why. I don't well, want to see? pile on Joe. I'm just saying. I love Joe Sheehan newsletter. Everyone go subscribe. I subscribe. I heartily endorse subscribing. And I'm, I'm only calling him out here because I have uh, called him out face to face. And I think he's okay with my, my good natured hectoring on this sure. point. Sure. And, you know, I don't mean to suggest that Joe doesn't care about aesthetics because he does. But I think that mm-hmm. there are times when he might prioritize other things over aesthetics occasionally. And so I don't want to ascribe a motivation to him that he doesn't have, right? That might not be his reasoning at all. But Mm -hmm. I'm simply offering to you an alternate explanation, again, mostly so that you can let go of something that objectively doesn't matter. (laughs) Doesn't matter, Ben. Yeah. Well, I'm almost at the point of letting it go because not a lot of sweeps predicted. I think we've all kind of come together. So you're not letting it go. You're declaring victory. Those are different. That's exactly right. Those are different, Ben. I'm spiking the ball. I'm I'm spiking the bat Reese Hoskins style here and saying that, uh, yeah, we've all all kind of realized sweeps does make sense. All right. So we should end with a, a pass blast before we bring on Ethan here. It seems like... MLB and the teams have met as we have been speaking here, oh. and they have decided to to kick the can down the road. So they decided not to make a decision yet. Oh, so, great. <laughs> yeah, so we will wait. All right. So this is episode 1923. This pass blast comes from 1923 and from Jacob Pomranke of Sabre. And he writes, 1923, the radio star, the first baseball game broadcast on commercial radio, took place in August 1921, a Pirates-Phillies game carried by Pittsburgh's KDKA station. Within two years, the new medium, often called wireless at the time, quickly emerged as a serious competitor to establish print coverage of baseball. In the spring of 1923, the BBWAA complained as more radio stations were given access to broadcast live coverage of games. In response, the Sporting News issued this rebuttal in its June 7th, 1923 issue. Quote, the members of the Baseball Writers Association may not be of the broadest vision, (laughs) but they are practical and true to type when they object to radio concerns being given permission to broadcast baseball games. But we can't exactly agree with the writers that it will result in curtailment of baseball publicity. There was a laugh when it was suggested in these columns that the time might come when a ball game might be pictured on a screen in every home that had a radio set of its own. Little radio sets were not then sold in 10-cent stores, but the prediction that they would be is being borne out. Considering all the tricks they are turning in the air, we would not be inclined to join in the demand that wireless lay off baseball. We might live long enough to have it thrown up to us. Sporting News editor J.G. Taylor Spink did, in fact, live long enough to see baseball on a screen in every home, Jacob notes, as he predicted back in 1923. The first Major League game was broadcast on television in 1939, and the first World Series game appeared on TV in 1947, 75 years ago, in Jackie Robinson's rookie season. So, yeah, I I knew that uh, baseball clubs were wary of games being broadcast in their local markets. Apparently, writers too. I guess writers wanted a a monopoly on providing game accounts. (laughs) Why would they read our gamers if they can just listen along on the radio? So this was uh, the publicity value of broadcasting games was not recognized initially because it was like, well, if they can listen to or watch the games, why would they come, right? And then I think gradually it was realized that it's still nice to go to the ballpark sometimes. And also you can make new fans 
who are not actually at the ballpark if you broadcast their games, and then maybe they will come to the ballpark. And then many, many decades later, it turned out that uh, getting broadcast deals was more lucrative than actually having people come to your ballpark anyway. So the the cart is uh, before the horse at this point, broadcast-wise. Do you think that when the accompanying article many years later was written about the role that broadcasting on TV would have in diminishing radio, that they ran it as video killed the radio <laughs> Probably. Yep. Yeah. I guess that's uh, what Jacob was going for with his heading, perhaps, yeah. the radio star. So, yeah. It's because yeah. everyone has as little self-restraint as I do when it comes to headlines. I think <laughs> yeah. it's what we've learned. All right. So we will not end there. We will take a break there and we will be back with Ethan Singer of Ump Scorecards to tell us all about the Pat Hoberg Perfect Game, which uh, we have not discussed enough to this point. It is clearly the lead story of this World <laughs> Series. That is how it will be remembered. And we will dig into the details with Ethan in just a moment. Well, we are joined once again by the founder and proprietor of Umpire Scorecards, Ethan Singer. And what a day. I thought this would never come, but it has happened. The Umpire Perfect Game, courtesy of Pat Hoberg. So we had to have the creator of the site on to walk us through the momentousness of this occasion. Ethan, (laughs) welcome back. Thanks. Thanks for having me. (laughs) <laughs> so if someone was going to do this, Pat Hoberg was a likely candidate, right? He is uh, one of the top umpires consistently, according to your site. He was. He he was. Depends on how you define uh, define likely. I mean, in terms mm-hmm. of accuracy, he's definitely up there. But in terms of uh, in terms of the fate of the universe, I think he was probably <laughs> the most likely. <laughs> and. Were you watching this game live or or at what point did you become aware that this might be a possibility? Was it like, you know, the the process runs, the algorithm does its thing and spits out the perfection and then the alarms and the klaxons sounded and the confetti fell from the (laughs) ceiling? Or were you getting tweets during the game? People saying like, hey, this is a potential perfecto here. He hasn't messed up. Like, at what point did you become aware that, that this could be a possibility? Yeah, so I actually was not watching the game live. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if you saw, but at 10.30, when our bot starts tweeting, the tweet that initially went out said that there was an error in our, there was some sort of, something happened. <laughs> he, he broke he broke it. He's just too good. <laughs> which is, yeah, which is rare. Uh-huh. And so around like 10.40, I saw that and started freaking out. I texted my buddy who now is helping me run this. And, and so I started looking through, like I can run it locally as well on, on my sort of my end of things nowadays. And I was going through sort of just checking errors, like what could have possibly, like this never breaks. It hasn't broken in a very long time. Yeah, and, uh, and sort of no as I, yeah, exactly, now. exactly. Yeah. And as I was going through, I, in the back of my head, I was like, okay, it was Pat Hoberg, right? Like, could it be that something <laughs> about no missed calls impacted our run? 
And then I decided, I was like, what the heck? I'll print out the accuracy before it breaks, see what happens. And there you go. Zero missed calls, 100%. And then I was like, oh my goodness, you know. <laughs> then I went, we went as fast as we could to fix it. We sent out a little sort of, you know, it's worth the wait. Sorry about the error tweet, just to sort of get some eyes. Yeah. But yeah, that's pretty much how it went down. Why was it an error? Is it just like built into the system that umpires are fallible? I mean, why did it throw a <laughs> yeah. error when there was no mistake? Yeah, a bit of an oversight on my end. It's a little like technical, but basically in the to calculate how much an umpire impacts the game on the whole, I sum this column in this spreadsheet for all of the pitches, which is like how much that pitch was worth. Um, mm -hmm. But as it turns out, as an oversight, if there are no missed calls, that column is never created. <laughs> and so it was returning this error that was like, I cannot calculate the sum of this column because this column does not exist. <laughs> uh -huh. and, then, and then I realized that, that that was because there were no missed calls. And I think one of the things that I'm often struck by by your account is just how accurate umps tend to be we get the the odd game where somebody was clearly having a bad night but while you know fans of teams that might feel they were on the the short end tend to look at these and say haha umpires are terrible i'm often struck by just how accurate they are so what was the difference in terms of true strikes true balls his accuracy on the evening like how how slim are these margins between a regular old good pat hoberg performance and his perfect game yeah great question so his accuracy on this season is somewhere in the 95% region yeah 95.5% and we think we we have a new model this year which helps us sort of calibrate how well somebody is performing relative to what you might expect from the average umpire. So we think his accuracy this season is close to two points above what an average umpire would be. And so in game two, we saw that by our sort of metrics, our models, that the average umpire would have missed 8.7 calls in that game across the 129. So I don't know exactly like what 95% or 95.5% of 129 pitches is. So I can't or at least not off the top of my head. Um, so I don't know how much, how many more he got correct than we would expected would have expected him to get correct. But certainly versus the average umpire, he pretty considerably outperformed. You know, on that set of 129 pitches by a pretty significant margin. Yeah, that's 123.2 would be his expected correct calls, I suppose. Right, right, right. Based on the regular season rate. So yeah. he exceeded his uh, expected accuracy in that sense by almost six calls, I suppose. So we talked to you last year about how your model works, and I guess it's probably changed a bit since then. So how squishy is the concept of perfection when it comes to an umpire, right? Because if a, a pitcher pitches a perfect game, we know that no one reached base and there's nothing you can argue on about that. Of course, you can argue about the pitcher's role in it and, and how perfect the pitcher really was. But the way that we grade a perfect game, that's kind of the way it is. Of course, you know, you have uh, pre-replay. Of course, you have the famous Armando Galraga, who's perfect, but not called perfect, etc. But right. with an umpire, could you have reasonable definitions of the strike zone that would produce a significantly different grade for this game? I, I mean, you know, you know, how dependent is the specific strictures of your model and definitions of the strike zone, et cetera, which is kind of a judgment call to an extent in producing the perfect reading? 
Yeah, good question. There is definitely some squish. So for example, I mean, the way that I would sort of colloquially define what we consider a missed call is a call that we are sure is incorrect, even considering potential error in uh, measurement, or uh, like we are we are sure to some statistically significant degree, I think it's we are 90% sure. Mm -hmm. And so a perfect game in our particular definition is that never happened. There was no pitch where we were 90% sure at least was incorrect. Now that doesn't mean that there were no pitches that we were 60% sure were incorrect or 55% sure were incorrect or 40% incorrect, but it means that there were no pitches that we were sure were incorrect. And I should just clarify, there are very few pitches that are sort of on that like exact borderline for the most part, yeah. at least the margins of error that we use or the potential margins of error that we use in our system, mm -hmm. make it so that like most pitches are very clearly a strike or very clearly a ball. Mm -hmm. So it's unlikely that there are too many pitches that, you know, using a different definition would have, you know, really swung uh, one way or another, but certainly there is the potential for some squishiness. And then obviously there are some other questions like what size of the baseball do you use? Mm -hmm. Do you, you know, incorporate like rounding of the corners of the strike zone? Do you, you I mean, I mean, we, we talked about this last time, there's a bunch of different um, sort of subjective decisions to be made, which also could be impacting whether or not it's considered perfect. And as we th think about other umpires on this crew who might cycle through home plate duties during the World Series, are there other umpires that we should be on the look for as if we don't have other things to look for in a World <laughs> Series? But is it possible? Are there guys on here who write particularly well by your guys's metrics who you think, huh, maybe we'll get a twofer here? Yeah, that's a good question. I know that just as a, th there are accounts that tweet out analysis of our data, which is, that has been a sort of interesting development over the past season or so. Yeah, but, I bet. Um, but they have like all of the latest, you know, who's umpiring which games, what their accuracy is. But I can definitely like I have it I have it pulled up. I can look up some other names. Yeah. While you do that, I, I was gonna ask whether there's uh, any possibility that this game will retroactively be rendered imperfect at some point, right? Because models change and, and you know, war values change. Like a lot of these advanced stats are, are based on constantly updated information. And so if a perfect game happened, it probably won't be taken away, although I guess some no-hitters have been reclassified and, and retroactively rendered not no-hitters by MLB in the past. But if you were to update your model again or your definitions or you get more information or whatever, then could at some point this no longer be, could this be taken away from me as a, as a umpire perfect game? Yeah, I'd say it's unlikely. For that to happen, we'd probably have to make a decision which makes our analysis more strict, which I think is not the direction that uh, we want to go. I think uh -huh. we're pretty happy with, especially the the accuracy side of things where it sits right now. And any like retrospective changes to, you know, like the impact of an individual missed call would not change whether or not this is a perfect game because again, no missed calls. So the only thing that would change it is changing our methodology around accuracy, which at least as of right now is is not in the works. Uh-huh. A couple other questions about this game specifically. So the expected accuracy for this game was in the 43rd percentile. That was 93.24% uh, expected accurate. 
So does that mean that something about these particular pitches and locations and counts, et cetera, made this actually a tougher-than-average game to call correctly? How is that metric calculated? Yeah, that's exactly right. That is the the correct interpretation of that. Okay. So he didn't get a gift here. He he had a a tough assignment and was still perfect. I mean, yeah, just about average 30 or Mm 93.24, I see. But what makes it easier or harder? Yeah. So each individual pitch, this was one of our big post all-star break updates this year, but each pitch is assigned a likelihood that it's called correct. And to be clear, again, called correct Whenever I say called correct, that is our particular definition of called correct. So mm-hmm. that things sort of match up across our statistics. But the likelihood of being called correct, like you said, is based on location, speed, vertical movement, handedness, and some other sort of extraneous factors like count. Uh, I, I forget everything that goes into the model, but you sort of mm-hmm. get the idea. It's sort of just the average umpire in this particular scenario, what would they do? And then we sort of tally that up for the game and we say how many, you know, across all of these pitches, how many would we expect the average umpire according to our model to get correct? And then you can see that, uh, you know, 93.24% is how many they would be expected to get in in this game, given this specific set of pitches. Uh Uh-huh, right. In case you're looking up the umpire assignments, I I doubt lightning's going to strike twice in this series, but... (laughs) But it's uh, Dan Iasonia for Game 3, Trip Gibson for Game 4, Jordan Baker for Game 5, Lance Barkdale for Game 6, and Alan Porter for Game 7. I would love to know, MLB doesn't seem to make umpires available for interview very often because I've tried to get John Lipka, who is another very highly graded umpire, I think the highest, at least career-wise, in your data set. I've sent out interview requests for him, and, and that hasn't gone anywhere. I'd love to know, just like, is Pat Hoberg, like getting ribbed by the other umpires for his perfection, <laughs> or like, are they feeling the pressure now, you know, like Dan Isonia has to follow perfection in Game 3? I just, I wonder whether, I mean, I don't know whether umpires put any stock in these things, because of course they get their own grade from MLB and we don't know what MLB's uh, zone evaluation system or whatever it's called, we don't know what that said about the Game 2 performance. For all we know, it might have said there was a miss, although on the whole, I think that metric tends to be fairly forgiving or tends to have higher than the publicly available metric accuracy grades. So maybe it it was perfect. Maybe there had been other perfect games prior to this, according to to that way of figuring things. But yeah, I'd I'd love to know if we ever get a story. Pat Hoberg, you you have a standing invitation (laughs) to come on the podcast and tell us (laughs) what this has been like for for him. Yeah, that that is something that I think about quite frequently. I mean, it's sort of fun to think about. These people do not get a lot of oxygen, especially the ones who do a really just fantastic job do not get a lot of oxygen in the in the baseball community really as a whole and pat hoberg was trending number 17 on twitter (laughs) yesterday morning yeah i don't know who saw that but literally in the u.s to trend for for yeah how accurate for a good reason yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly so that was very exciting to see so i would not be surprised if i mean trending on twitter that's there are a lot of eyes on that so i would not be surprised Mm -hmm. if uh if somebody sent it over or something like that when the account tweeted that it had been a, a perfectly called game, was there any pushback in the in the mentions of your account on that idea? Was anyone like, "No, he clearly blew this call in the fifth inning. What are you talking about?" Or was the the reception that the account received sort of in line with what your metrics had demonstrated? Yeah, the reception was overwhelmingly 
positive. I will, I will say just off the bat, most people were really, really pleased to see, which is not surprising. But there were a couple people that disagreed. I think some people were sending screenshots from ESPN mm. strike zones, as well as some screenshots that they had taken during the game from game day and saying, this doesn't match up with what I saw last night on the TV broadcast. This doesn't match up with this graphic. But one of my favorite updates of the last maybe season and a half is that we have fans now who will do the work of explaining things for us. <laughs> so you can see in the comment section, people saying, oh, well, there's post-processing that happens to these pitches. <laughs> the TV strike zones aren't exactly perfect. People that have read our, our explainers online. So I think on the whole, people tend to agree with our analysis as it stands for this game. But that's not to say that there was nobody in the comments that had, at least on initial inspection, some questions or some disagreements. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that causes some confusion, sometimes you had an overall accuracy of 100%, but an overall consistency of 96%, which is also better than average, but not perfect in the same way. So can you just refresh people's memory on what consistency is actually grading and how it's possible to be perfectly accurate, but not perfectly consistent? Yeah, this is a good question. And uh, I think this is a bit of an edge case that deserves some, or at least implies that we should maybe think about consistency a little bit more. But to explain why it's possible, uh, the way to think about consistency is if you take every pitch that is thrown in a game and you throw it into a model uh, that estimates at any given location, given the pitches nearby, what is the likelihood that a pitch that lands exactly here will be called a strike. Uh, so that's the first thing we do. We generate a model that can tell us that. And from there, we draw sort of this red squiggly line, uh, very sort of weird looking organic shape around the boundary where that probability is 50%. So the edge where going outside the edge means it's more likely to be a ball. And on the inside of the edge means it's more likely to be a strike. Um, so that's what we call our established umpire zone. Mm -hmm. And then from there, if there's any called ball, which is inside the zone, we say that that is inconsistent with what has been established. And if there's any called strike that's outside of that zone, we also say that's inconsistent with what's been established. Mm -hmm. uh, so for right now, that's our measure of inconsistency. But so, you know, you can see in the, in the graphic, there's a bit of a white space on the on the top of the strike zone where the established strike zone is below. And so pitches in there would be considered accurate, but not consistent. Mm -hmm. So that is that is why it is possible. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask, I, I know you said that you're unlikely to go back and sort of render this game imperfect, but I was curious if there was anything that a perfectly called game illuminated for you about your model that made you think, huh, maybe we need to change the way that we're thinking about that, or we're not being as precise on this measure as we ought to be. Was there anything else apart from maybe rethinking some of the understanding of consistency that his good night illuminated for you? Yeah, I'd say the main one is the consistency. I think the rest of our metrics sort of make sense with 100% accuracy. The only other real consideration is whether or not we should have slapped a giant perfect game 
you know, <laughs> in, in big, bold text across the front of the graphic. But, uh, but other than that, I've been... some perfect game bunting to, to exactly. adore exactly. the box with. the all caps perfect game with the sirens <laughs> on the tweet. So that was yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know, by the way, whether it is harder to be accurate in the postseason overall? Like, I would assume that the overall accuracy, I, I remember writing about this years ago, and as I recall, it was not as much higher in the postseason as you would maybe want it to be, given that MLB, at least in theory, is giving these cushy postseason assignments to the most accurate umpires. But I would imagine that it's probably harder to grade pitches accurately in the postseason overall, just because you have pitchers throwing harder and with more movement and everything. So I don't know whether you've looked at that at all, but do you know whether on the whole it is harder to call pitches correctly during the postseason just because of the caliber of the stuff that's on display? I don't have a great answer for you. I could tell you that there are Twitter accounts online that you could find that would have a good answer. But <laughs> I will say if anybody is curious, all of our going back to 2015, you can uh, download our both regular season and postseason data and you could uh, you could find out. <laughs> okay. I could look quickly to see sort of what the average is, but I wouldn't be able to give you too good of an answer, unfortunately. All right. And do you have any sense of whether this should have happened sooner or whether it's weird that it happened even now? Like your data goes back to 2015. That's a lot of games. Should this have happened in theory, statistically, probabilistically? Like should there have been a perfect game by now? Or is it roughly in line with expectations that this is the first? Or is it improbable even that there is one this soon? Do you have any sense of that? Yeah, yeah, great question. So I think the question, it's not the easiest question to answer. There are some assumptions that have to be made. I think right now we say average accuracy is just under 94%, like 93.8% or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I'll just do a little back of the envelope calculation. But if each game has 150 pitches that you have to call, uh, then we would expect one perfect game every like 14,000 games or something like that. Mm -hmm. But there are factors there. For example, not everybody's accuracy is 93.8%. For example, Pat Hoberg is 95.5%. Uh, so in a game with 150 pitches, we would expect him to have a perfect game every just under 1,000 games. But 1,000 is, 1, is still a lot. But Pat Hoberg got lucky in that he only had to call 129, which also increases the likelihood of a perfect game. True, true. Mm -hmm. And so his... With a 95% or 95.5% accuracy in a game with 129 pitches, we would expect one perfect game every 379 games that meet that criteria, hmm. which is still, I mean, that's could be 10 or more seasons worth of umpiring for an individual umpire. Wow. Right. So for any of these, it's obviously hard to say we should have seen it earlier because all of these things are sort of inherently probabilistic, but it is certainly a very infrequent event. We should not really expect it to happen so often. It, it is very unlikely in general. Uh, even mm -hmm. one of the best umpires with the best accuracy in a game that did not have very many pitches would still have to wait maybe 10 seasons to have another perfect game. Mm -hmm. So you said 14,000-ish if you're just using the the average rate without accounting for some umpires being more likely, others being less likely. I guess if that were the case, then that would be somewhat in line with where we are, right? Because there are 2,430 games every year, except 
2020, there were fewer. So I don't know exactly offhand, but there have probably been something like, uh, what, 18,000 or 17,000 something, I guess, going back to 2015. So that would yeah, be... There's, yeah, there's just under 18,000. Okay. Yeah. So not wildly out of line, I guess, with what you would expect, just using those uh, very simplistic back of the envelope calculations that you just did so yeah yeah you realize that means that dan Isonia is going to call a perfect game tonight right (laughs) i know i know and then i'll 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 eat my words (laughs) yeah i guess hoberg is in right field for game three so we need some kind of ump scorecards for right fields umps to see if he is uh, perfect out there i don't know how many how many calls a right field umpire actually has to make over the course of a game yeah what is not many what constitutes a a perfect umpire cycle like what what else goes right. into that other than the home plate appearance? Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. Good the, question. The field up are, I guess like if you do not call a home run on a pitch that was actually <laughs> interfered with by a fan or, or something, like that's a perfect game. <laughs> it's probably a lower bar in right field than it would be at home plate, I guess. But we'll have to add that to the uh to the yeah. scorecard. Please do. Yeah. Is this like the mountaintop for you? Like is it just gonna be a letdown every <laughs> next time when when someone falls short of perfection or now that you know it's it's possible it has been achieved is this like all right i can't wait for for the next time although i guess whenever if ever the next time happens perhaps it it won't be quite as thrilling as the first yeah there's certainly uh certainly some novelty i mean eyes get wide and (laughs) oh my goodness what is happening sort of moment when when i first saw the what the tweet looked like but Mm-hmm. I think that it doesn't necessarily take away from impressive games, uh, or at least I'd hope that it doesn't for for people that look at our look at our scorecards. I mean, everybody knows it's an incredibly difficult job. So one person doing extremely well hopefully should not take away from many other people doing very well. <laughs> and I'm certainly still excited to see 98, 99% games um, over perfect games. Which is, you know, that is to say, those have been increasing in frequency uh, year over year by a by a pretty significant margin. So, and I don't think that that is taken away from how cool it is to see those. So, I'm hopeful mm-hmm. that uh, this game will not take away too much from from other games. Yeah, I'm glad that before the robots inevitably come in. Whenever that happens, or at least we get a challenge system or something, I'm glad a human achieved perfection (laughs) at least one time just to show the new robot overlords that, hey, humans can do it too, even if it's only one time in 18,000 games or something. So (laughs) that's nice. I think even when or if we get robot umps, like I hope that that umpire scorecards continues and maybe you can change it to robot umpire scorecards and it could just be 100% every time (laughs) or at least you can track if the the system just uh, blanks out for a pitch and misses one and is imperfect or if we do get a challenge system and some sort of hybrid which I think is our our preference then there would still be a a use for umpire scorecards even in a a robot umps world so I don't know whether you're, you're thinking I'm sure we asked you about this last time where you stood on this, especially because you you have some skin in the game now. You have a, an account with 300,000 followers and I yeah. imagine a, a fairly well-trafficked website. So in a sense, you're kind of not an unbiased party now. You're dependent on continuing mistakes to drive traffic, I suppose, to your account. Yeah. Well, for one, I will just throw out there, this Pat Hober game is our most liked, most retweeted, most <laughs> quote tweeted, most commented 
most mm-hmm. viewed, most clicked on tweet of all time by a, <laughs> almost a two to one margin over, uh, I think the previous one was an Angel Hernandez game from earlier in the year. But so just in terms of traffic, I, I think people really enjoy seeing really well umpired performances, which is something that I'm happy to have at least contributed to uh, highlighting. And so I guess on the question of automation, I'm probably in the in the hybrid camp, though I'd have to think about it a little bit more. I recognize that as a person who <laughs> I to some extent benefits off of umpires still existing. And that, that makes me a little bit biased. But I, I do generally think that it it provides some amount of entertainment value to some capacity uh, to the game of baseball. But I do think that I mean, obviously we see that it can have an, a big impact and impact the outcomes of games, which maybe is not the most ideal thing possible. So mm-hmm. to my understanding, there are reasonable best of both worlds scenarios. So, mm-hmm. And I, I guess uh, Pat Hoberg probably not available for interviews now because he's got a game. He's got to be in right field. So have you been deluged with other requests? Like, is this an exclusive or are you like on the Tonight Show or something tonight? Or like Sports Center to talk about the Empire Perfect game? Yeah, the the feedback to this one has been really, I mean, incredible. I don't know if uh, who saw, but it was on MLB Network this morning, mm-hmm. which was wild. And just yep. the, the feedback has been crazy. I've got a couple. Between. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm which was our first time. But yeah, I've seen a few other a few other people have reached out. So, I think people are just really excited to see the the perfect game which is, I guess, to be expected. It is very exciting. People are just people are happy. It's it's a really impressive feat and uh, it was cool to be able to highlight that. Okay, so before we finish, just to circle back to the questions we posed to you during the interview that required some research, if you have answers for these things, I'm still curious about just whether postseason games are A, more accurate overall, but but B, also more difficult to call overall just because of the quality of the stuff. And then secondly, also, we have uh, a few more games, at least during this series. So if you could kind of handicap the chances of perfection or or not quite that, but just tell us the the accuracy rates of the umpires to come, that would be wonderful. Yeah, great question. So on the first one, around differences in pitch calling accuracy in the postseason versus the regular season, uh, we do see that the accuracy in the postseason is slightly higher, but only by maybe a point or so in the mm-hmm. postseason versus the regular season, at least mm-hmm. in terms of the average accuracy in a game. Mm-hmm. But we also see that just on the whole, the likelihood of a correct call is about the same, uh, which okay. indicates that the difference is because these are I guess higher performing umpires for some reason or other are are being more accurate. Right. The expected yeah. correct is is within you know a tenth or around a tenth of a point difference. Got it. So very okay. close. Yeah. Okay. If that's the case, then then it, the accuracy rate should be higher because at least in theory, if the system is working as designed, then the better umpires, more accurate umpires, would be calling these games. Although obviously they judge the umpires on more than just their ball strike correctness. But even so, you would hope that it would be a, a higher caliber of ump. So is that the case for the remainder of this series? What do your data show there? Yeah, so we have, so I I can sort of go through these one by one. So we have Van Isonia's game three. We have him at 18th percentile in accuracy and 18th percentile in accuracy above expected. And 
still hmm. below average in consistency and favor. So hmm. maybe unlikely to have another perfect game, <laughs> but I guess I guess you never know. Um, <laughs> and then the next game is Trip Gibson, and I'll pull up his page. We have an uh, percentile of accuracy very high, 97th accuracy above expected, though only 77th percentile. So mm -hmm. just discrepancies and uh, I guess difficulty of pitches. Mm -hmm. uh, also very consistent, but favor not quite as high. The next game I have as Jordan Baker. And Jordan Baker has, let's look at his percentiles. Uh, 73rd percentile in terms of accuracy, 72nd in accuracy above expected, pretty much average consistency and also doing well on favor. Okay. Uh, game six is Lance Barksdale. Lance Barksdale has a accuracy percentile of the 82nd percentile. So that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. But it turns out he has had extremely difficult pitches to call apparently mm -hmm. over this okay. over this season only in the fifth percentile in expected accuracy. Um, All right. Which puts him at one, or well, in total, 1.68% better than expected, which puts him in the 95th percentile, uh, which nice. is quite high. Okay. Yeah. But below average on consistency and favor, according to our metrics. So All right. we'll have to see there, but maybe a perfect game is possible. And then... <laughs> it all comes down uh, to game seven, uh, uh, Alan exactly. Porter. <laughs> exactly. Alan Porter in uh, game seven. Let's see, what are our odds? He's got pretty good accuracy as well. So across the board, generally some accurate umpires, 75th percentile in terms of accuracy. But another umpire who has had a, a tough go this year, only 6th percentile in terms of expected accuracy. Huh. Hmm. So another very high expected or accuracy above expected, excuse me, 93rd percentile. And close to average in consistency in favor as well. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you asked umpires after the season whether they had a, a higher or lower than average like difficulty grade, whether they would actually be able to to suss that out, or whether it just yeah. it always feels challenging to them. <laughs> but certain <laughs> yeah, guys, it's I interesting. Yeah. I've always yeah. thought that it would average out across a across a season, but no, there yeah. are real differences in uh, in difficulty of calling pitches. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, history was made and we know about it thanks to Ethan Singer and his work at um, Scorecards. Of course, we'll never know if there was an umpire perfect game in the past. One imagines that, that there was given the rates and the probabilities that we talked about, but we'll never be able to quantify that even from 2008 to 2015. I guess it's a different data source and we're looking only at StatCast era here, but still great to know. Very exciting. It has made this World Series more memorable for me and many others, <laughs> I think. <laughs> this is why we watch. Yeah. This is why we tune in, just to see if the umpire can have his day in the sun finally. So everyone, check out umpscorecards.com and at umpscorecards on Twitter. You can support umpscorecards at umpscorecards.com slash support. Ethan is in college. I'm sure he could use some extra cash if you're interested <laughs> in supporting his, his efforts here. So thank you, and I hope you get on The Tonight Show sometime soon, too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. I'm not quite sure, but we'll see. <laughs> you could also follow Ethan's personal account at Ethan P. Singer, a little less active than the Scorecards account. But... Uh, Hire him, whatever he wants to do post-school, <laughs> as long as you allow him to continue to operate um, scorecards at that point. But his uh, his website also is ethansinger.me. Thank you, Ethan. Yeah, awesome. Thank you very much for having me on.
All right, that will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening, and thanks again to Ethan. If you check out his website, by the way, you'll see that he has two columns on there. One headlined my nerdy interests, the other headlined my less nerdy interests. Baseball analytics is listed under the less nerdy interests. So that probably gives you some sense of what the more nerdy interests look like. I should have mentioned, by the way, that Hoberg's previous high in a single game was 99.2% accuracy. And the previous high by any umpire, it was a multi-way tie, was 99.4% accuracy. So there had been a game or games where there was one missed call in a game with more called pitches. So in a sense, you could say that those were just as impressive as what Hoberg did, but they weren't quite perfect. And that does make all the difference, doesn't it? I guess it's also possible that the umpire accuracy rate is slightly higher in the postseason, in part because umps just raise their game for more important games. There was a study last year, we actually talked to one of the authors of it on episode 1715, but it showed that umpires do do better on more pivotal pitches, but that was like within a game, the win probability added, not necessarily the championship win probability added. So I don't know if they're able to raise their game for the postseason the way that, say, pitchers can throw harder in the postseason than they do during the regular season. There's still some decision fatigue that enters the picture for the umps, as we discussed on that podcast conversation last year. As you no doubt know by now, World Series Game 3 was in fact postponed, so the entire rest of the World Series schedule was just shifted back a day, each of the games as well as the possible off day. So slight advantage Phillies from the rainout, probably, just because they're the team with a little less depth and getting more time off benefits the team with less depth. So the Phillies get to skip Cindergard for now and go with Ranger Suarez in Game 3 and then Aaron Nola on full rest in Game 4. And then supposedly Zach Wheeler will not start game five. Thompson said he wants to get him some extra rest. We didn't note this, I believe, but his velocity was down in game two. So he's feeling some fatigue. So if he doesn't go, then maybe Syndergaard will go then or Gibson. But if the Phillies are down at that point, I imagine Wheeler may be pressed into service anyway. Another benefit for the Phillies is that you potentially line up Ranger Suarez for a game seven start, which would be a big improvement over the previous alternatives. On the Astros' side, Dusty Baker sticking with Lance McCullers for Game 3. He could go back to Verlander for Game 4 and then Valdez in Game 5, but it's sounding like it's going to be Christian Javier for Game 4, and he wants to get Verlander extra rest too. So Meg may be onto something with her fatigue theory. Baker, by the way, is planning to start David Hendley at DH. We mentioned that maybe he should do that, and he was planning to do that for Game 3 and still is. I don't think we noted this, but Jose Altuve was 3-for-4, had a big hit in Game 2, and that's pretty important for the Astros because if he's back, I mean, they got this far without Altuve hitting at all. So if he's back to his usual self, then that would be a big boost for them. So, stinks to miss out on a night of baseball, but better than trying to play through the rain. Turns out very late October, early November is not the best baseball weather, so you have to take the clear skies when you can get them and wait for them when you can't. And much as it's disappointing for Phillies fans not to get to go on Halloween and see their team, it probably does benefit the Phillies overall, which should be some consolation. And in the meantime, while you wait for Game 3, or while you wait for whatever you're waiting for when you hear this, the New York Times had a fun little interactive game called You Be the Ump, where it sort of simulates some borderline pitches and then asks you to call seven of them. I didn't do great. I did not make Pat Hoberg proud. I only got four of the seven correct, although I think I kind of got my bearings as I went on. I was just out of 
sorts for the first couple and blew them, but then I got on a streak late. I think I just sort of had to situate myself and get accustomed to the angle. But it's a fun way to test yourself and to see how hard what Hoberg did was. I'll link to that on the show page. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Michelle Lenhart, Cody F. Schmidt, Kyle Bishop, Scott Terry, and Tommy Whitman. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include monthly bonus episodes. We just published one on Monday. We drafted our favorite things about Halloween and the Halloween season. There are now 12 bonus episodes in the can for you to access right now if you sign up. You can also get access to the Effectively Wild Patreon Discord group, nearly 900 strong. Plus, you get discounts on merch, you can get an ad-free Fangraphs membership, and you get one more playoff live stream, which will be coming up sometime this week. Check the various tiers to find out which perks you would be eligible for. You can also contact me and Meg via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash effectivelywild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. There's been a spec.